0: This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate, and champion women in risk, regulation, and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about, and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk, and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected, with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today we are pleased to have two government relations uh, specialists in, in the uh, studio with us. Uh, Rebecca turner Lenchner from uh, BNY Mellon, Head of Government Relations and Public Policy for the Asia Pacific and Catherine Simmons, Head of Government Affairs Asia Pacific at Citi. So thank you for joining us today. We are looking forward to hearing your perspectives on uh, government relations and public policy um, as we uh, look at the year ahead. Thank you for joining us on Risky Women Radio. So we've done an amazing job at connecting very senior women across risk regulation and compliance across the globe now. We're in uh, 13 different cities Um, What we want to aim to do here is really help guide, mentor, give a female voice to a whole lot of uh, topics I think that are relevant in this space, but also this guidance and bringing in and making even more connections um, with our emerging women in risk regulation and compliance. So with that in mind, let's kick off the conversation. And let's start with your career journeys, which I think it's just fascinating to sort of see how you've both ended up in um, government affairs, but with quite different journeys on getting there. So, will we start with you,
1: Catherine? Sure. Well, over the last 25 years, I've, I've had a, quite a varied past. So I began by studying politics and economics and history at university. And then I was lucky enough to enter a graduate program at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in Australia. So they took three people um, from around Australia, and then they put us in different divisions, and I ended up in International Division, which was just the place I wanted to be, having done international politics. And so there I covered Asia, but also the trade agreements, and a lot of the international issues of the time. Um, And we also sat on top of the intelligence agencies, the defense agency, and the foreign ministry. So I got some really good experiences there in all those different areas. And then I took some time out and I went to Japan on a scholarship from the Japanese government and I studied Japanese foreign policy. And I actually applied for that while I was at university and had to make a really difficult choice about whether I gave away the Prime Minister's Department or the scholarship. And I decided to keep both and I postponed the scholarship for a year. And I went into my boss at the Prime Minister's Department and said, I've got this scholarship, I'd really like to take it. And he said to me, that's got to be a record of someone working for, for about six weeks and asking for a year off (laughs) 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 but I really support Australians understanding Japan and Asia and so yes you have my blessing to go so I did that I came back and worked in the prime minister's department again and then I transferred over to the foreign ministry foreign affairs and trade because that's one of the line departments and that's where you get the really detailed knowledge and there was an expectation that you really circulate out of that uh, department that really collated all the information and and worked on the high level of issues and then just get down into uh, the deeper issues. So I was at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade working on China, I also worked on international uh, security issues, things like nuclear weapons, uh, nuclear energy, and then there was a budget crisis in Australia and we were told that we should all go away and do something if we wanted because they wanted to save some money. And so I applied for another scholarship to Japan and got that and went to Japan a second time, this time to look at China-Japan relations at Keio University and then I wanted to stay and do my PhD and they said to me no you're educated enough you have to choose is it us or is it them so I had lots of discussions with people around me and and saying what should I do should I do my PhD and people gave me great advice and they said what will you do with your PhD when you finish and I said I'll probably go and work in government and they said well you already do so why don't you just go back to the government and forget about your PhD so I did that Um, and then um, after that I went on posting to Beijing as the first secretary of political at the Australian Embassy and again a great experience but then within my organization I should have gone and done something different like manage the IT department or done HR to demonstrate diversity and I thought that's such a pity I've learned Chinese I've learned Japanese if I want to leave now is probably the time if I want to stay in Asia now is the time or I'm going to go to the Middle East or to Latin America and um, by that time I'd met somebody from Europe who um, didn't really like living in Canada and couldn't necessarily live everywhere in the world because of his career and so we decided to to move to Hong Kong and I took up a position with State Street and I was hired to set up their Asia-Pacific regulatory industry and government affairs function. So I did that for about six and a half years and then from that I was hired by Citi to set up their government affairs Asia-Pacific uh, function. So that's how I got here over the last few years.
0: And that's amazing amount of diversity so I find that an odd comment that someone would say to get diversity to go into it different functional area, considering the geographic diversity, the government, and then moving into, you know, industry. I mean, what, what's through that journey has, you know, I mean, you've obviously had a lot of highlights, but giving us sort of your top three highlights on the journey?
1: I think it was the chance to move and to do these different things and to have those new experiences. And so being a diplomat in Beijing was really a highlight. I learned Mm. so much and I was responsible for China's foreign policy. So I learned about China's relationships with every single country in the world, Africa, Asia, the Middle East. And so that was a great way to, to understand this emerging power. And then the prime minister's department, I got to sit on top of all these agencies with all these issues and our role was to resolve conflicts as much as possible between the different departments before it went to the Prime Minister in that Cabinet meeting. And we tried to resolve the the issues so that they could be agreed in the Cabinet and if not it went up to the Prime Minister for resolution. So I learnt great skills there about how to prepare information and have persuasive arguments and to negotiate with people. And then the other thing was the nuclear work. I knew nothing about nuclear Mm. energy, I am not in any way a scientist. And I had to coordinate the views of these six different nuclear agencies in response to the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency's um, questions and issues. And so I learned there that you can actually learn anything at all, as long as it's not in depth. Um, And you can really, if you apply yourself and you really try and understand the issues, you talk to the experts, you can really learn anything and you can add value. So I was very proud of myself for being able to pull together responses on the peaceful use of nuclear, energy Um, just as I was surprised that when I joined the financial sector with a little bit of application and learning I could have then add some value here so um, Japan really taught me that lesson if you Mm. apply yourself you can really um, you can really learn a lot and achieve a lot
0: fantastic gosh I feel like we could uh, have a very long session here and and get a lot out of this Um, so Rebecca Tell us about your journey, which has been equally interesting.
2: Yes, but unlike Catherine's, it doesn't have as gorgeous a narrative. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I, I came to um, my role at BMY Mellon um, very asymmetrically. I, I had a very circuitous route to finding uh, the job that I'm perfectly suited for. Um, like Catherine, and I, I studied very, very similar things in university and went to um, a program, a master's degree program, but I spent chunks of time um, in the nonprofit sector, in government, um, and then in, in corporate. And during that time, it, they, there was one sort of element that, um, that sort of the story revolves around and that I was always sort of in a policy focused role. So as Catherine was saying, you know, how to apply the skill set um, to each one of the jobs and tasks at hand and what, what skills are you aquir- uh, acquiring in return to help you on your journey forward. So um, I, I worked in, in policy positions in the U.S. Congress and then with, in the, with the Hong Kong government um, in, their, in the run-up to the handover in the 90s in their New York office, which was their de facto embassy, um, and that was really, really fascinating and sort of sparked my, my, my love of Asia. Um, but at the time, I was working in a nonprofit housing organization, looking at um, their negotiation around um, contracts with the government. So I was helping them understand the, the governmental landscape, how to put applications forward that made sense to policymakers, and in turn, help them prepare themselves for the examinations um, when the government... Saw Came to see what their what their structures and and risk frameworks were like to manage public money um, effectively. Um, so that was that was fascinating work. Um, then um, I I got pregnant with my my first child and my husband um, literally while I was in recovery came and said, "Honey, um, I have an opportunity to work in Hong Kong. Isn't that great? I know you love it there." And I was thinking, hmm. That's a really tough call because I had just taken a a, a lovely leave of absence from from my, my my nonprofit role. I was very satisfied in my career and my husband all of a sudden, you know, through threw a monkey wrench in the works. And within three months we had picked up and relocated to to Hong Kong. And that started my, my journey of off-ramping my career to trot around Asia-Pacific following my husband. Um, and you know what I will say in sort of the context of in being a traveling spouse, we lived in amazing countries. We lived in Japan for 10 years. This is my second run in uh, Hong Kong, uh, cumulatively almost 10 years, and four years in India. And um, while in many of the countries outside of Hong Kong, I couldn't get a work visa. That was just, you know, not possible. Um, I had to decide how I was going to be a productive member of my, myself and my life and of the family as well as society. And so I did a variety of different, different roles, um, started businesses. Um, volunteered and on boards of directors, um, helped schools devise curriculums, and um, and sat on policy committees and governance committees in in, in my in my role there. And um, what I will say is I've always had a very strong gender lens, so in many of the countries in which I was looking at very serious governance and curricular issues, there was really only one voice around the table, and that was the man's. And so just being um, engaged in the conversation really, I think, um, taught me that that power of of changing direction and changing the conversation just by having a different perspective. then when we moved back to Hong Kong and um, uh, during the in the, the throes of the financial crisis I was incredibly fortunate to be able to participate in a Goldman Sachs um, on ramping program called a return ship and that was a very transformative um, you know experience for me and for I'm still very very close to my entire cohort and um, that, that actually gave me the opportunity to come back to work, to have roles that were meaningful, to be able to upskill my technology, my communications, um, and, and develop my network. And from that role, I ended up at a SIFMA, which is a financial trade association based here in Hong Kong, where I spent um, five-plus years building out their regulatory and, um, and a policy department. And that was really exciting because the organization itself was almost like a startup. Um, it was five people and we grew it to 20 plus. Um, when I left, I had a team of four. So that was, you know, that was am- amazingly rewarding. And through my 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 network from that role, which was with every one of the financial institutions, um, including the financial service providers like Thomson Reuters, um, I was able to transition to my role to be in Wine Mellon brilliant. Rebecca,
0: what is the biggest risk that you feel that you've taken in your career?
2: Um, I love this question because I did something way out of the box even for me. Um, I studied medicine in a country I knew I could never be licensed uh, because of strict requirements around language. Um, it may have seemed like a dumb move because it was an incredibly arduous process, um, it was time consuming, it was expensive, it was, it, it was a, a, a big part, a big chunk of my time every day. But I honestly was doing what I loved, and um, I've, I've been able to leverage those skills throughout my career in, in different ways. Um, and I think women should never be afraid to invest in themselves, even if they think... which country were you doing? Japan. Oh, Wow. And, and I really think that we need to, to offer ourselves the, t- the opportunity to do what we love, even if we don't know what the outcome will be, even if it's uncertain that it will be worth the effort. Just, just do it.
0: Excellent.
1: And Catherine, biggest risk for
0: William, you know, in your career?
2: For me, I
1: think it was moving from government and being a diplomat into industry. And people often ask me, why did you do that? And people often wanted the job that I had. <laughs> it's like, are you crazy? Why did you just leave that wonderful career that you just had? And then, um, you know, it was the move from government into industry, which is slightly different. And it really was a change to, um, in I guess the the, um, the sort of the sort of work that I did, and also where I sat in an organisation. So you could say that within government. Um, I had the ability to ask for information and to get it, and then in industry I didn't, it really changed. Um, But I will say that there was some sense to it because the job that I do now is as close to the job that I used to do before, very much like being a diplomat. You get sent to a country, you don't know anybody, you don't know anything, you have to learn the issues, you have to meet people, you have to then convey your head office positions to the local country, you have to convey what's happening in the local country back. Um, And so it, in the end, made sense. But at the time, it seemed like a huge risk to give away this really uh, good career that I had in government.
0: Tell us a bit more Then, in your function today, tell us about who your customers are in the business and what's the connection for um, government affairs, and then maybe we'll hear from you as well, Catherine, you know, similarities, differences...
2: So my clients tend to be um, the business leaders of the art organization who understand that much of the market opportunity and challenges in Asia Pacific tend to have a regulatory or policy nexus. Um, so they understand the skill set and, and the expertise that I bring to the table. But I'm also looking at the public sector client segment because for BNY Mellon, um, many of our, our top clients in the region are central banks, um, and, and ministries of finance Treasury etc um, so that that's that's you know sort of the client segment segment but the demand is really around information sharing and context um, obviously when um, when our function can offer a strategic um, solution to to a problem that maybe the business or the public sector hadn't thought of um, or we can help them avoid making um, a mistake or uh, causing unintentional harm to their business strategy, obviously, that's a really good day. So, I think partially, you know, um, we look at to be information providers, we look to be context providers, and to, to offer sort of the, the social and cultural element um, depending on the region in which we're active.
1: And so in my role, it's it's um, similar in, in some ways. So I work very closely with the different business heads a whole, across the whole spectrum of our business. But then we're also present in 15 countries. And so I work with those country heads and those franchises as well on issues that, are, that emerge. So I work on at the local level on things like maybe licensing applications in countries where you do need to have government approval for licensing or market access. And then at the uh, bilateral level, I work very much on On the issues between the United States seeing are a US company and that country so if there are some bilateral trade negotiations for instance what sort of things should be in there for financial services and then also at the regional level working very much with um, the regional associations so the 10 country ASEAN grouping the 21 country APEC grouping as they pursue initiatives in financial services and then the next level is the global uh, level and that is maybe more the global regulations from the Financial Stability Board and the G20 as they come down into the region and then into local countries and trying to get some consistency in what's required from the firm at that global or head office level and then at the regional and the local level as things like you know Recovery and Resolution or Basel is.
2: I think the, the, there's another element that, that both Catherine and I do, and that's also bringing the Asia voice back to our head office. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes, you know, the size of our institutions in our home market, um, that there is a little bit of an echo chamber. So helping to also take the information flow, not just the US, into Asia but Asia voice back to the US is incredibly powerful as our organizations interface at these at these global levels and that's and I would say that FinTech is a
1: place where that's really the case so there's so much happening in the Asia Pacific and those in the US and EMEA are not always aware of it so I think we play a very valuable role in highlighting what is happening here and bringing that information back and and then comparing what's happening in the different locations and perhaps coming up with some best practices practices and models that should be pursued as well.
0: Yeah, so I was going to raise that because there is that asia voice and this sort of sometimes view that there's this one you know homogeneous place called asia but as you said <laughs> Catherine you've got 15 countries in your remit I assume similar 13, 13. Yeah, that that in and of itself is is a huge challenge. And how do you how do you keep across the you know, the the impact, the changes, all of the different area all of the, you know, elements and, and government change and policy etc across those areas how do you do that today well
1: I think prioritization is really important so people often ask that question and so my answer is I'm really not interested if there's a local regulation about putting um, something outside the door that has FX rates on it that's really not anything that I need to know about there are compliance people in country that can do that so the things that I'm mostly interested in are the really big proposals that will have impact in that particular country maybe something like data onshoring that could potentially cost millions of dollars but then is also relevant to other countries in the region and then even globally and then also in terms of regulation it's those the issues that are being discussed at a very high level by the policy makers in a sense our equivalents in the regulators so within the securities commission and the banking commission there is always an international team and that team is always working on international issues with other countries and that's where we focus as well as they're starting to think about things like cyber security or fintech um, and other market shaping issues and that's really where um, I would get involved and I would focus um, and and that's maybe where you need to have that extra assistance at the regional and maybe even the global level. There's a lot that in-country people can handle um, with compliance and legal, and the country head and the business head working together, and and so I don't get involved in that. uh,
2: Similarly, I think that the government relations function um, for us is really the advocacy and the voice of the industry and the voice of the policymaker. So where there is still room for for the shaping um, the, the discussion I think is where we're where most effectively deployed. Once a regulation has been passed or that there is a problem and the thinking around it is fully baked, it's much more difficult to make progress. And that's why there's such um, you know, an important synergy between the risk compliance and, as, as Catherine was saying earlier, their legal functions, because some of these issues um, you know, really require very sensitive negotiation because the policymakers tend to have the, the best intent for their market in mind, but they may not have the global perspective that we can offer in a dialogue um, about how the impact of even a regulation or a rule in a single market can have ripple effects across the local economy, the regional economy, and even the global economy. And for many of these countries, the international banks um, as as engines of growth um, are, are crucial to, to their economic and, and um, financial market development. And if they put a rule or regulation that's too difficult or too costly for us to, to be able to participate in that market, it's going to have re- repercussions.
0: So we're starting to sort of you know develop the the idea here and i think that's amazing sort of customer i mean uh, career journey and then how it all fits into the organization one of the other areas that i really want to uh showcase with risky women radio is to bring you know the female voice to certain topics and it doesn't matter which industry i think you're in whether it's you know the movies and how many female protagonists you have to op-ed pieces in newspapers, we still don't get enough female perspective, female voice, so in your uh, particular focus area around government affairs, can you give me your thoughts on sort of what's the the government affairs sort of landscape for 2018, Um, your thoughts around that? and sort of, you know, if you expect any surprises and, which, and to your point, Catherine, what are, what are the kind of key areas you're focusing on?
1: Sure. Well, I think on the regulatory front, we're watching the reforms in the US as a US institution. Um, So there will be some changes made to the regulations that were passed after the financial crisis, some adjustments. And that will then cause effects um, with EMEA, but also with the Asia Pacific. So that's something to watch out for. On the politics side, of course, there's the US election. Um, There are also trade issues that we've seen emerging. So um, I think we'll have to watch very carefully. the year how how that progresses and then within region um, there are other initiatives that the regional countries are working on as I mentioned um, there's the 10 country ASEAN grouping and and um, their finance ministers and central bank governors meet every year and they try to progress their integration agenda for 2025 so um, we'll be looking to see what sort of issues that they're focusing on Um, and the same in APEC they're working towards the 2020 BOGO goals and they have quite a lot going on in the financial services um, sector and so we'll be working on with them on that and and the issues that are emerging it is very much the to do with the digital economy and digital finance um, so things like privacy and security cross-border data flows um, the role of fintech firms um, the role of incumbents um, and and then also um, i guess the protection of the consumer and also the system um, are, are emerging, and and then also, as I mentioned, the application of those global regulations as they come down. Uh, things like recovery and resolution, uh, capital and liquidity requirements, um, are are things that we'll be watching, um, as well as derivatives uh, regulations and safety of central counterparty clearing uh, organizations or institutions
2: that have been set up. I know you're going to be shocked to hear that my views are very similar to Catherine's. (laughs) Uh, I think the lens of the global regulatory reform has basically shifted from the US being the dominant generator of a lot of the um, most challenging rules to to, uh, now heading towards Europe. Um, And these of course do have impacts in, in Asia. Brexit is also, honestly, um, creating important challenges for the business-as-usual model. I mean, I think there's been a lot of internal discussions about uh, things like booking uh, where where transactions get booked, Fragmentation of liquidity and some other, you know, serious and important issues. Um, I think probably at the global level we've seen the pendulum begin to slow its swing from being um, this massive tsunami of new regulations and regulatory reform to the the pivot point and the slow, maybe perhaps moving back um, into a more rational, more um, you know, centrist. Position and I think that the U.S. is probably ahead in in looking um, at trying to the to look at the challenges around um, some of the regulation that's already um, in in process. Um, and again, I agree with Catherine. I think we're going to probably be looking at the um, the the agenda being being focused on local market concerns, and those include investment. Investor protections, market abuse, and increasingly, as Catherine was saying, you know, data and and privacy, data protection and and privacy. Um, Both of those obviously um, have global um, implications and impacts. And so, I think probably Catherine and I will be spending a lot of time looking at what's happening in local Asia Pacific markets on on how that plays out to make sure that there's consistency and calibration across all the jurisdictions, so that our big Global companies can, um, can compete and they can serve our customers in all the markets in which we're active.
0: And I mean there's still a lot of disruption whether it's geopolitical, whether there's you know the data breaches that are going on, just new technology and the whole kind of digital um, ambitions as you spoke a little about Catherine. What do you think uh, you know, which are are going to be the the sort of biggest disruptors or the biggest challenges um, to the whole, you know, environment? Pretty broad question for you there.
2: (laughs) Can we say all of the above? I think it's
1: the regulatory changes. If we speak of financial services then it is really the US approach because they used to gold plate, they did things very differently, they came to a negotiated solution with the Europeans on, on what should be done and now everything is changing. So as the US figures out what it would like to do um, others need to wait and once it's figured out what it would like to do then it needs to have discussions with the Europeans and with Asia and Asia is in a particular situation of having to make sure um, that it can work with and comply with both the US and um, the EU and so if you're a regulator say in Hong Kong you've got institutions from both of those locations both with their head office requirements and somehow that all has to fit together and then you have the relationships with all of the other Asia-Pacific governments so I think that the regulatory reform agenda is certainly um, something that will disrupt the the daily workings of, of firms as they then figure out what it means and what they need to do to to become compliant with it and how it might affect their cross-border activities.
2: Um, I agree with 100%. Maybe I'll just uh, throw a little spanner just for for fun. I think China has to be up there in terms of um, its profound impact, especially on our region, and they're undergoing some pretty significant changes. Even though part of it is secular, um, I think the, now that she has sort of lifted himself up above the normal policy processes it puts a different um, a different lens on, on on him and his activities and I also think as we watch China start to um, enforce the cybersecurity regulations uh, for multinationals in China that is going to have profound implications to um, you know business decisions that are, are on the table for investment into China as well as its potential Potential um, for uh, for acting as an example for other uh, Asia Pacific regulators. So I think China would definitely have to be always for us the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge.
1: And I might jump in there too and talk about trade and investments. Mm, and seeing, please do. You know that's um, something that's driven the growth in the region um, over the last several decades, and we've seen action, trade action being taken. Um, There's a feeling that there might be a rise in protectionism and um, sort of tit for tat responses, and then a trade war. But I think we need to be really careful in the Asia-Pacific to look at what's happening here in the region and how it might be different from elsewhere. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership was actually signed in March with 11 countries. And that is a uh, high-quality 21st century agreement that addresses emerging issues. And 11 countries, uh, some of the most the major economies in the region and even globally, decided to go ahead even after the US um, decided that it would withdraw um, There are also a whole lot of bilateral trade agreements um, under discussion, also regional agreements. Um, So I think we have to be really careful to Make a distinction between what's happening in the Asia Pacific and what might be happening in other regions. And you know, even yesterday we had the Australian Trade Minister speaking about the value of an open system and and free trade um, agreements. So I think, yeah, I guess there's certainly threats, but so far the Asia Pacific region is. Is, um, seems to be wanting to continue with what they were doing which is greater harmonization, liberalization um, and breaking down of barriers in, um, in, in terms of goods and services. And so a sort of prediction from all of that, what's your
0: view on how that might all play out for 2018? crystal ball star?
1: I think countries will continue with the efforts that they've started. Um, We've seen comments from a range of countries about the desire to continue. So uh, while some countries may take punitive trade actions, I don't think we're necessarily going to see others then uh, do the same and then escalate. Because I think particularly countries in the Asia-Pacific which are very much trading countries, mm. um, and they're increasingly trading with each other. Uh, it's not necessarily with uh, the U.S. and not necessarily with the EU. So, kind
0: of stepping into the, you know, the void, if you like, for some of this stuff being pulled apart, creating, and and uh, I guess building on what they had already.
1: Yep, so they already had a, a lot of plans for greater liberalisation in goods and services, commitments on tariff reductions, they've already done a lot and they continue to go ahead with that. So I think the Asia-Pacific by the signing of the TPP and with these other bilateral agreements is really committing to going ahead with um, this liberalisation and integration which might be different from other regions.
0: And what's your kind of crystal ball view, Re- Rebecca, looking forward?
2: Well, I think I probably stopped making global predictions because I had a zero for, you know, 12 track record because <laughs> I think we were really in unprecedented times in terms of um, challenging conventional wisdom. What I will say is that in unpredictable times, the the, the challenge and the value that, that we bring to, to our Companies is um, the ability to manage change and to and to help calibrate risk and to be a um, an opportunity seeker, and I th- I, th- I really believe that um, you know the. The, there are going to be things that we anticipate and we can plan for that will manifest, and I think Catherine gave us a pretty good list of it. And then there may be things that nobody has thought about, um, nobody have could have predicted, and and that goes to building resilient um, systems in in our organizations to manage and control risks and to protect the our employees, to protect our clients, to protect the communities in which we operate. And so I think I you know for me, I, I predict I will be spending a lot of time on governance, accountability, transparency, things that make us stronger um, and more able to manage risk.
0: It's great. Um, I love, you know, the Chinese symbol uh, for risk, which is both risk and opportunity. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that the function absolutely providing both that balance, how do you manage risk, but how are you also setting up your organisations to take advantage um, and maximise those opportunities. So that's fantastic. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Risky Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. Um, So our kind of third section, if you like, now, which I think you've already given us a couple of... uh, This is our Risky Women rants and Revelations. (laughs) Now, I've already heard a couple of revelations, so let's start with those. Let's start with the, you know, what's that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self or that, you know, I wish I knew then what I know now kind of uh, element because I think for our emerging... uh, Folks in risk regulation and compliance, that would be a, a, a fascinating thing to know. So Rebecca, we start with you.
2: Um, you know, this, this, is, this is such a great question. And um, I, I really believe that the, um, I would have wanted to tell my younger self that the Me Too movement would not have happened until 2017 and that I would have three grown-up daughters Um, I find myself really asking myself um, what could I have done better as a professional woman um, to hurry that process along. Um, I hope that um, we can be strong as this upcoming generation of both men and women um, and be great advocates for the remaining social change that, that really needs to happen. Because there is work that's still to be done for a fully inclusive and rep- responsible society. And this generation um, of, of young people have really been stalwarts in that. And I hashtag respect um, everything they've done and really hold them as my role models.
0: Do you want to give us your rant straight away? Does it, does it relate, your risky women rant?
2: Um, <laughs> I, I think the millennial bashing of some of my, my traditional colleagues is, um, is absolutely misguided. One of the things that I've done um, as sort of an older woman in my organization is I took up the, the chairship of our multi-generational um, uh, business resource group. I could have easily joined the WIN um and 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 been been on the women's committee but i really like this energy of this generation their problem solving their their entitlement for not standing for things that many of um, the women in my age just said well you know you just gotta deal with those comments no this generation really just doesn't believe that and um, you know to harness their idea generation and to harness their their view that the world should be a great place to be um, I'd I'd love to be their ally and their champion in that
0: Fantastic
2: well I'll
1: focus on the work side
2: so I think
1: um, I wish I'd known that everything was gonna be okay and that there are many different paths that you can take. Because I think when you're beginning your career and you're looking ahead, you really wonder, what is it that I should do? I kinda wanna get to this point over here, but if I go left, is that gonna get me there? If I go right, what if I go up? What if I take some time out? What if I move to this location? And someone once gave me a really good piece of advice and they said, there's not necessarily always just one choice that you can make you can take you can choose several different paths and they're not wrong; they're just different. And then you can still work your way uh, to a place that you want to go later, without even knowing what that place is. And so, I think often when you're confronted with a decision, you you feel like you really have to get that one right, and and you don't. You can actually uh, go down a path, and then you can think that wasn't quite right. I'm going to take another turn. I'm going to go down another path, and then I'm going to go down another path. But I think the thing is, when you're on that path, do some really good thinking about whether it's the right path whether you need to get off it and if you need to get off it get off it quickly and make clever and strategic choices you know don't make um, choices that that are that don't make sense so it's really about sitting down doing self reflection looking at who you are looking at uh, what's presented before you and and you know just choosing uh, what seems best at the time and then assessing it and then making a decision uh, whether you stay there or, or go in a different direction
2: I, I really couldn't agree more um, you know we we forget um, in the beginning of our career that our career is going to be long and with life expectancies and the work enablement and the changing nature of work um, our careers are going to be very long and you can have simultaneous careers you can have parallel careers you can have intersection in your career um, and that's okay uh, I think um, it's really important, something that Catherine said, and that the choices that you you make need to make sense. They don't need to make sense necessarily at the moment. If you if you just go for it and say this is where I want to be and this is what I want to be doing, that's great. But as you build your career over time, to see those choices as painting a picture or telling a story that you can communicate, and that you're always acquiring skills that are going to get you to where you want to go.
0: Yeah, I always describe a lot of careers as being very much a zigzag. I think for too long people have thought of this very linear, you know, connected, joined up, obvious path that you're going to be on. But I think increasingly you see the need for, you know, reinvention and reskilling, And I think that's going to become even more important.
1: And can I add something that sometimes the strangest things happen. So what did I focus on at the embassy in Beijing? It was the North Korean nuclear crisis. <laughs> 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 and North who Korean would have thought <laughs> 10 years later in private enterprise exactly the same issue is emerging and I have skills that come from that and from working at the International Atomic Energy Agency on nuclear issues. Now who would have thought there would be um, that linkage between that previous career which was very different and the current career and so that's the other thing you will find that things from your past as long as as Rebecca said you're learning skills and you're developing you will find things from your past that are that are relevant when you least expect them.
0: Absolutely, and I think that ability to both make the connections um, and also uh, show that um, how you can apply skills or knowledge, I mean in that case it's like a fantastic link, but I think there's so many other areas where you know, people automatically don't, don't bring in those differing skills and knowledge into other conversations which i think is part of the brilliance of you know if you want real diversity of thought Now, your rant. Have you got a risky women rant?
1: Well, I'm afraid it (laughs) is about politics because, you know, we often say that the markets doesn't pay attention to politics and people don't pay attention to politics. But I think everybody should pay attention to politics because it's really relevant. It really does shape the environment and it's it's really important that everybody follows what's going on and then again thinks about it and makes a contribution because that way we can really change things. We don't have to keep doing the same thing things over and over again and we don't have to complain about things that don't get fixed we should look at the problem and then find solutions and just frankly make the world a better place to follow up
0: on that what one thing do you wish you could change now and why
2: me personally it will be the global percentage of women on boards of directors of listed companies I think with more diversity and inclusion on boards there will be better governance better decision making, and that would reduce risks and improve outcomes for all, full stop.
1: Excellent. And Catherine, for you, what one thing would you change? I really want to get countries sitting in a room resolving problems because so much time is wasted. And so um, I would really like to see uh, regulators and officials coming together and really trying to solve the problems that we face um, in a timely manner so that we really can all uh, meet our full potential um, and and achieve positive outcomes because so much time is, is wasted.
0: Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our rapid-fire round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. What we need here is very punchy, probably, you know, one, two-word statements um, or words for a couple of key questions for you. So, I'm gonna do you first, Rebecca. It's like a quiz game here for you. Okay. So, one word to sum up the world of governance, risk, and uh, regulation, and your
2: perspective. Can I make one very long word? Yes. (laughs) Resilience, accountability, transparency. (laughs) Or if I wanna make it three, resilience, accountability, and transparency. That is the bedrock of, of what we do and how we make a difference, um, and so I will leave it at rapid fire.
0: Top risk for 2018?
2: I think um, I, I have to go back to China. And
0: what's your outlook for the year ahead? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, uncertain? I
2: am always an optimist. I can't help myself. That is, that is the world in which I live, it's the world in which I work, and um, it's the world that I want to reflect. So optimism
0: okay Catherine what's your one word or statement uh, to sum up the world of governance risk and regulation ever-changing what is your top risk for 2018 geopolitics (laughs) and your outlook for the year ahead optimistic pessimistic uncertain
1: always optimistic because we have the ability to affect change
0: Excellent. Well, I would love to thank both of you for joining us on Risky Women Radio. It's been a fabulous conversation and uh, there is so much more we could have got through, but I think we've uh, hopefully given some uh, great insights and ideas to our emerging uh, women and men in risk regulation and compliance. So thank you both. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion, and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes, and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.